You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine Christology. Dr. Spencer, last week we discussed a number of passages in the New Testament to make the case that if we have been born again, we will obey Jesus Christ our King. True Christians do walk in the obedience of faith. How would you like to proceed with this topic today? Well, first I want to again note that we are not saying that a true Christian will obey perfectly. We all sin. But all true Christians have been born again, which is a very serious statement. We've noted several times that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that, quote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, unquote. We need to realize how radical that statement is. We are new creations. It is inconceivable that the new creation will behave exactly the same way as the old one did. Paul also wrote in Romans 8, verse 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Now, we are to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, who perfectly obeyed the Father. That's an incredible truth to sit and meditate on for a while. But this radical transformation takes time. It doesn't occur overnight. Oh, it certainly does take time. In, In fact, it takes more than a lifetime. We will not be perfected in this life. We only reach perfection when we die. Nevertheless, there is also an instantaneous change that occurs when we're born again. The fact that that change is not total doesn't negate the fact that it is radical, meaning that it affects every aspect of our being. We are, as Paul wrote, new creations, even though we also still have the old sinful nature hanging around to trip us up which the New Testament frequently refers to as the flesh in the Greek. Yeah, I'm sad to say that I'm very familiar with the flesh. We have to wage war against it every single day, as Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3. And you're not alone. Every Christian has to fight the flesh every single day. And Colossians 3 is a great chapter. I think it will be well worth our while to take a look at an extended section of it. The first four verses speak about what theologians call our union with Christ. Which is a glorious topic indeed. Uh, Let me read Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Isn't that wonderful? We are not to be focused on this life because this earth is not our eternal home. We are to have our hearts and minds set on things above, in other words, on heaven. And we are reminded that Christ is there, seated at the right hand of God. He's seated because his work of redemption is finished. And Paul speaks about our union with Christ in this passage. He says that we died, which is very strong metaphorical language, meaning that our old sinful nature no longer rules. He's even more explicit about this in his letter to the Romans. 
In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, we read, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Unquote. And it is this union with Christ that Paul is speaking about in Colossians 3, verse 3, when he says that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And as a result of this union, Paul draws the amazing conclusion I read a moment ago in Colossians 3, verse 4, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yeah, that is a marvelous conclusion. And notice that Paul started in Colossians 3, verse 1, by saying that we have been raised with Christ, even though we are still here on earth, in this body, with sin still present. He also wrote in Romans 6, verses 2 through 4, that, quote, We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, unquote. Christian baptism is a wonderful symbolic representation of our union with Christ. When we are immersed in the water, the symbolism is that of dying with Christ. And of course, his death paid the penalty that we owed because of our sins. And then, when we are raised up out of the water, it symbolizes our union with Christ and his resurrection. And note carefully what Paul wrote. He wrote that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so again, we see this idea of a new life. New creations live new lives. The fact that there will be significant change in behavior is inescapable. I agree. And so getting back to the passage in Colossians 3, the next six verses talk about the process that all Christians are called to go through in this life. We are to fight against our old sinful nature and to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Yes, uh, let me read those six verses. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, we're told, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I love that passage. It illustrates both the reality of the radical change that has already occurred and the need for further change. We are to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, and we are to rid ourselves of such things, which clearly indicates we are not yet perfect. There is still work we need to do. But then we're also told that we have taken off our old self and have put on the new self, which speaks about something that is already accomplished. There has been a significant change already. That change was new birth. And we've noted before that John Murray calls that significant change that comes with new birth 
definitive sanctification, while the change that continues throughout the Christian life he calls progressive sanctification. I like that way of describing it a lot. But whether we use Murray's terminology or not, it is an undeniable truth that the New Testament speaks of our sanctification in three tenses, past, present, and future. We have been sanctified, which refers to the real radical change that occurs when we are born again or regenerated. We are also being sanctified, which refers to the continuing process of transformation that every true Christian goes through. And we will be sanctified, which refers to the fact that we will be perfected by God when we die. What a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. I I agree. And now I'd like to wrap up this part of the discussion by going back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In session 119, we looked at question 26, which asks, How does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And we have now seen every part of that answer. Christ subdues us to himself by sending the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and enable us to repent, believe, and thereby be united to Christ by faith. Then, because we are united to Christ, we are justified in God's sight. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of our representative, Jesus Christ. This is the double imputation we've spoken of before. Our sins are put onto Christ. He bore them on the cross and paid the penalty we owed. And his perfect righteousness is imputed to us, which means it is counted as ours. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing transaction. I give Christ my guilt and condemnation, and in return he gives me his unimpeachable righteousness. But that isn't all that God does. There's even more. We are also brought into the kingdom of God, and he begins ruling and defending us. And at the end of the answer in the Catechism, we see that through the process of sanctification, Jesus our King conquers all our enemies. This includes our sin, which is our greatest enemy. In addition, although we haven't spent any time discussing this yet, he also conquers the world and Satan, our other two enemies. That is wonderful news. But even though this victory is already won in a sense, there is still work that we need to do. That's very true. The victory is certain, but it is not yet completely evident in our lives. We have to fight our battles every day, as we noted earlier. And the great news for a Christian is that we do not have to fight these battles in our own strength. In fact, if we try to fight them in our own strength, we're guaranteed to fail. Yeah, the Apostle Peter learned the hard way that he couldn't stand in his own strength. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 35, we read that he declared to Jesus, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus. That is a great example, not only for showing how we will fail if we try to do things on our own strength, but also for showing how God guarantees the ultimate victory of his people. We're told more about this episode in Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, where we read that Christ told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers." Notice, first of all, that Satan had to ask permission to tempt Peter. Satan is far more powerful than we are, but he is a creature and is completely under God's control. God allows him a great deal of freedom to attack the church at this time, but Satan can never go further than God allows. Well, that certainly is a part of what the Catechism is referring to when it says that Christ restrains and conquers our enemies. Satan is already defeated and is severely restrained by God. That's true. We also see, however, in that passage, Christ praying for Peter, and we're told in Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25, that, quote, "...because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them." Unquote. Jesus is in heaven right now, interceding for his people. This is part of his functioning as our great high priest. And his intercession is always effectual, which is why he said to Peter, when you have turned back, not if you have turned back. He knew that even though Peter would fail temporarily, his faith would not be utterly destroyed. That is a great comfort to us all. It's amazing to think that Jesus Christ cares about me and is interceding on my behalf even now. It is amazing, but true. That is why Paul could write to the Christians in Philippi that he was confident that, quote, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, as we read in Philippians 1, verse 6. God will never fail to accomplish his purposes, and he has purposed to save his people. Therefore, if we've been born again and Christ is our king, we are eternally secure. As I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we have three enemies, our own sinful natures, or flesh, Satan, and the world. The example of Peter shows that Satan will be defeated. And we also have the promise of our Lord's brother, James. He wrote in James chapter 4, verse 7, that if we submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. That is a great promise. We also know that God will always provide a way for us to overcome our own sin. There is no temptation that a true Christian cannot resist. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that, quote, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That is, again, a great comfort. We're enabled by God to stand up under any and every temptation. And we are also given victory over our third enemy, the world. We read in 1 John 5, verses 3 and 4, quote, This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's an interesting passage. It again mixes a past tense and a present tense. It says that this is the victory that has overcome the world. In other words, it's an accomplished fact. And yet it also says that everyone born of God overcomes the world, which is speaking about our continuing need to walk in holiness and fight the daily battle. And notice that overcoming the world is linked with obeying God's commands. 
which are not burdensome to someone who has been born again. If we have been born again, we are part of God's family. We share in his nature, and so we delight in his commands. We desire to walk in his ways and please him. And yet we still have our old sinful natures hanging around to drag us down. We're told in Galatians 5 verse 17 that, quote, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want, unquote. The spirit in this verse is capitalized, indicating that it's referring to the Holy Spirit, who dwells in every true believer. In his commentary on 1 John, the Reverend P.G. Matthew notes that this internal opposition, which every believer experiences, quote, is proof that we have been born of God. If we are children of God, there will be deep conflict within us until the day we die. We are like live fish who swim upstream against the cultural flow. It is the dead who float with the current. That's a great illustration. The world, our flesh, and the devil are all trying to drag us down. But if we are alive in Christ, we will fight upstream, endeavoring to live obedient lives for the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit is our powerful aid as we do so. Jesus himself was filled with the Holy Spirit without limit, we're told, in John 3, verse 34, and was thereby enabled to do all the work God had called him to do in his human nature. We have that same Holy Spirit available to us as Christians. All we have to do is ask. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We should all ask for the Holy Spirit so that we can lead lives that are pleasing in God's sight, walking in the obedience of faith. We should. And with that, I think we have completed all that I wanted to say about Christ as our King. And so this is a perfect place to finish for today. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say, brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical Christology. We hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.